everyone has some sort of a closet that has become too small. A closet is no place to live, and I want to support as many people as I can in stepping out of that prison into the fullness of life that is waiting for them on the other side of that door. This is Nancy Shadlock from Centered Life Coaching. Join me in listening to these coming out chronicles. Get curious about their stories and then go see what good things are waiting for you on the other side of your closet door. Hi, everybody. I wanted to start today's podcast with a little personal story. I recently joined Clubhouse and it's this new social media platform where it's all audio and you can go into different clubs and hear people and talk and as soon as I got on it, I was like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. This is the chance that I need to connect with all kinds of people. And, you know, just like, I thought it was going to be incredible. And it very quickly became this addiction where I was listening all the time and would have one earphone in while I was doing the dishes or playing outside with my kids and not present. And I had so much FOMO and it was just like not good for my mental health. And so I eventually deleted the app and decided that like in the mornings when I'm driving the kids to school or or to day home and back, what if I listened to something more deliberate and that I was choosing rather than just random people chatting in a room? And so I started this practice of listening to Brene Brown's podcast as much as I could when I was driving and in these times where I wanted to have some kind of stimulation in my ears. And it's been incredible. Like I love the wisdom that she shares and the amount of people that listen to my podcast and say, I also listen to Brene Brown's podcast. (laughs) It's quite fun. And so one day, hopefully she'll be on here too. But as I was listening one day, she was interviewing this woman named Aiko Bathia, and I was just enthralled by what Aiko was saying and with the grace in which she said it. And I could see so many parallels from the work that she does in equity and inclusion um, with, with Black folks in the work that I do with queer folks. And so I thought, yeah. I'm going to try. I'm going to try and reach out and see what happens. And sure enough, she said yes to coming on the podcast. And so I was so excited um, to have her today. And I just want to tell you a little bit about Aiko. She is an equity consultant, a speaker, an executive leadership coach, and an attorney. And she's listed as the top seven anti-racism educators on Forbes. And beyond all of those like accomplishments and things, she's such a kind and generous human being. And I think you'll hear that today in our conversation. And she really helps reframe things to help people learn, help people be in learner mindsets when they're approaching people who are different than them. And I really love that about her. And so I'm excited to share this interview with you today. Aiko Bathia, it's so awesome to have you on the show today. Thank you for having me, Nancy. I'm so excited to, to connect with you and to hear your stories. And I'm curious what you're going to share for your coming out story today. You know, I thought about this and I was like, gosh, there's so many 
um, different moments that might re resonate for um, listeners. Um, and there, but there's two that stick out the most for me. Um, so there's the coming out when you come out on your own. And there's also the idea of being outed, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think about um, first being outed as somebody who is black and poor. Hmm. And that story happened when I was um, probably in like third grade. And I always went to a school that in the U.S. we call them Title I schools. And they're the schools where the um, lowest income um, folks attend. So everybody gets free and reduced lunch. And, you know, everyone's kind of in a very similar um, state. So I went to, um, I was selected for this gifted program. So once a week. I would be bused to this other school hmm. on a different part of town that was pretty much all white um, and, you know, also higher class. So it was the first time I think I realized that I was black in a way of being black in relationship to whiteness. Hmm. And I don't know if at the moment the idea of the class and poverty hit me, like certainly I was also um, they were trying to figure out how I would eat because they didn't have a free and reduced lunch meal program there and all these other things. But also the way I talked was different. The way I dressed was different. And also the way that I looked was different. It was like going to a foreign land. Mm -hmm. So that was the first time that happened and left me with a lot to process when you think about being the only person um, kid put on this big old bus <laughs> once a week by yourself to go to this other school. So Wow. I think about that as uh, almost being, you know, out of this blackness and poorness and being in this other space that I didn't really know existed. Mm -hmm. um, and when I think about that, there's a direct correlation to coming out. And, you know, you go through this phase where you're doing a lot of in the beginning of your life, kind of like the check the box thing, right? So you're supposed to go to school, you're supposed to make good grades, you're supposed to, in a lot of spaces, go to college and get a good job, right? And good job usually means paying well, maybe doctor, lawyer, or something like that. So for me, it was never like this big difference about, you know, what it meant for identity because I always carried blackness and everything with me because that's how I was raised. But then being in a space where you're often um, assimilating because of what success looks like mm -hmm. and me, um, feels and looks different, but you just learn it kind of innately, right? You learn how to cover, you learn how to code switch almost innately. No one has to tell you the rules, but if you want to get a promotion, if you want to get hired, you're going to talk a certain way, do certain things. And, but making an intentional decision of, okay, why am I doing this? And this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and it's also pretty exhausting, but it's also something that's really demeaning about this. Um, and just having this intentional decision about, you know what, if it's not funny, I'm not going to laugh. And if that's not my natural, natural, you know, disposition about how I talk or how I show up or how I wear my hair or whatever, I'm just not going to do it. Wow. I started really seeing that correlation between um, race and what it means. And it's always that overlay of class that would come up for me. So How old were you when you started to like see those discrepancies and make a stand? Um, I think I definitely saw the discrepancies like all the way from when I was younger, but I don't think I understood what it meant in the professional, I'll put air quotes, context 
um, until I was in uh, professional spaces. So I would say that it was when I was um, at my first law firm job at a law, law school. Hmm. There's the idea of, you know, what's conservative and what's professional. And then realizing, oh, I okay, what's innately considered professional is actually rejects a lot of what it means to be not white, hmm. right? We see a lot of our aging counterparts and other folks like who change their names, right? And to make it simpler and easier for people to pronounce. Mm -hmm. um, when, you know, we straighten our hair because you look too different if you're wearing your hair naturally. And of course, this is before the conversation around the Crown Act and other things now that are happening around um, black people wearing natural hair. So, yeah. So it, what, that, what changes did you make then that really kind of, you know, solidly put you in that space of owning who you are? I think probably the first um, real thing besides like subtle um, aspects was when I just left law firm practice and I left to work um, for the city of Atlanta as an attorney. And the majority of employees there were black, you know, in Atlanta. And so there was also just more space to just navigate and be intentional about how I'm showing up and not have to or I would say be less intentional in terms of how I show up in a way that's going to be accepted versus just how I am. And um, being able to say things in the company of a lot of people who look like you and share the lived experience than you would when you're the only one in a room, right? Mm -hmm. Did having that experience then help you when you did get into context where you weren't the same as everyone else? Have that story? Yeah. It Absolutely did. I'll tell you, there's a moment when I backslid and I went to, <laughs> when I moved to Seattle and I worked in philanthropy and I was back again in the sea of, you know, whiteness and wealth and academic elitism. And it was always a stressful push and pull. But when I was there, I did things like I started the first employee resource group for black people, the first employee resource group for Asian people to make sure there was a space where we could be ourselves and talk about things that that were um, specifically impactful to us because there weren't other spaces like that that existed. Right. And like, I heard you talk about this on Brene Brown's podcast and I really resonated with what you were saying about having employee resources groups for specific subgroups and not tasking them with educating everyone in their company. And that's such a big passion of mine too, especially like in the LGBT sphere of like, you shouldn't be tasked with running the pride celebrations and teaching people about pronouns. Like it should be a space for people to be nurtured and heard. And so how are you bringing that into companies now? So I think, um, you know, lots of organizations are trying to figure out what, what does this mean anyway, in terms of creating intentional spaces so what that looks like for inter employee resource groups or BRGs or whatever they're called in your organization is one, making sure that they're well budgeted, right? Mm -hmm. So that people don't have to pass around the hats to you know, make sure that they even have refreshments for their meetings, making sure that leadership is acknowledging ERGs for the value that they bring in terms of just employee intent retention because when you think about you go to an organization like you're going to gravitate right right away to like your tribe work is it going to be safe to be out mm -hmm. and so it, it serves a great value and even in terms of not only retention but also recruitment 
and being a voice of conscience, I think, to organizations. So one, making sure they're well-funded. Two, making sure that they're supported so that when people go, they don't have to feel like they're sneaking off of work to go instead of this is a benefit for them and also a benefit for the company. Um, and also bringing in the voices to the very strategic work that organizations do, like giving them a clearing, not an expectation, which I think is different because mm-hmm. it's like now you're supposed to go to all of the fairs for recruiting black people and people of color or people who are gay or what you have to go to those because that's part of your price you pay instead of inviting people if you want to we would be really glad to hear your experience to what's not working where do we have blind spots and where can we make it better and two how can we mentor you and also make sure that we're nurturing your growth in a space where you may find yourself being the only and then allowing them to not to to be able to not only act as a learning mechanism as desired, but also as a space to be able to support one another and have a space where they can talk in a psychologically safe space. Mm-hmm. Because most of the times that's an aspirational goal for organizations, right? Is to provide psychological safety. So what we want is like, hey, our organization may not be 100% there. Validation to have places to talk about things that may be in our regular offices, we're not there yet, where you feel comfortable yet. Mm -hmm. And how do you navigate the, like it's important to have someone from the C-suite part of that group or supporting that group, but also if they're not part of that group actually, then like how do you create a safe space but have it well supported? Yeah, um, that's a good question, Nancy. And it has so much to do with also the sustainability plan where executives should be present and supporting um, the work of ERGs and their existence. But that also provides an opportunity. I actually coach ERGs often to not tap the one person who's within their demographic group. So the black group not having the one black executive have to lead the work because that's taxing them too in a different way, right? And getting the one out employee to come and have to be the sponsor for pride. Because what it does is one, when you select somebody who is not within that demographic group as a, you know, who's part of the executive leadership, it informs them that one, this is part of their job too. And also it's expected that they be leaders across spectrums. You're not going to only be leaders of the folks who are, you know, white males or what have you, you actually are a leader within the whole organization and two, inviting them and setting expectation for them to have a learner mindset meaning no, you're not always going to get it right or no, but this is your opportunity to learn and to figure, you know, model social humility and leadership in a different way. And I think it's a great opportunity for leaders to not have the knower mindset and to be committed and to model what it looks like to be a part of a group that doesn't, that you may not be part of the demographic group, but owning, hey, but I'm also accountable to this group. Mm -hmm. Hey, there's value here and I need to be a part of it. And what I don't know I need to learn. There was this um, a few years ago when Deloitte had announced that they were disbanding several of their ERGs. And, but one of the reasons that they printed was because the white male leaders didn't feel comfortable or welcomed or what have you. And I thought that was so interesting because I thought about how many women in STEM don't feel comfortable. How many people who are not straight heterosexual people don't feel comfortable. I mean, people are people of color, but we show up every day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we learn, we figure out different ways uh, to stretch our emotional intelligence so that we can meet other people 
if not halfway, all the way, almost to our own detriment. So I'm like, if you're a leader, shouldn't you already have that skill set? And if you don't have it, shouldn't you be building it where you are emotionally intelligent enough to understand what, how people who live a different um, existence and experience in society show up at your work workplace? Like that's not good enough to say, oh, because you didn't feel comfortable. So what's it going to take? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And I would hope that by participating in a group like that, they would, you know, be able to see themselves in someone else's shoes. And yes, that's right. Build some empathy there um, and be curious. And a lot of times before we, you know, throw executives in, we give them that coaching about what does this look like? You know, what does this muscle of emotional intelligence look like in this kind of, in this sphere, in this space? How do you want to show up and what does support look like for you that you need to do this well? And also what's the support that you're going to offer? And how do you like walk them through that? Uh, I think that uh, it depends on who the leader is, but meeting them where they are with their mindset. Sometimes they may not have the will yet. And so working through that, sometimes it's not, the, they may not have the skills. And so working through that, um, being able to also give people tangible, concrete, um, co-designing actionable steps for them um, within their own growth spheres, almost like a, it can feel like a curriculum. Um, and understanding what does empathy look like? What doesn't it look like? What are you afraid of that could happen? Was that really um, so scary to stop you? Or what does it look like for us to navigate that? Mm -hmm. Part of it is them not feeling that they're just lost at sea. I think the thought is more overwhelming than the reality has to be. Mm -hmm. A lot of the support and talking things through and connecting it oftentimes with experiences they've already had But for some reason, when something is labeled as, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, or has to do with the Black people, the gay people, the women, people get really nervous, right, Mm -hmm. about it. Yeah, because it it feels like things have turned, the tides have shifted so much, and now white men are on the stand, and it's like, it's just time for some shifts to happen. And we've been used to it being a certain way for so long. Yeah. And I, and I think like, it's not even just, I mean, I guess if being on the stand means being accountable, then yeah. And, and, and but I think a lot about a lot of it being an invitation that's being extended mm-hmm. really intentionally um, about, you know, having more empathy, having more insight, having more in- emotional intelligence. Um, and it not only be an invitation, but hey, there is this degree of an expectation now. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if it's so much about on the stand versus yes, if we're gonna like, we need to take that step of also having accountability of meeting this expectation. Yeah. And uh, I think that's a great distinction. I just, yeah, do you have any wisdom on how to help people reframe it like that if they're feeling attacked or like, how can you? In- help them realize this is an invitation for you if they're not there yet yeah I think um sometimes when I'm working with people when you have privilege or you're by default in a um, power group 
there's the idea of um, framing it like this. I will say that to do this work in a transformational way, you have to be ready to be the villain in somebody else's story. Hmm. And that means uh, that you're not always going to get the benefit of the doubt. And that's based on real, not only historical, but real life experiences that people have had. And you're walking in that skin and identity that has done that harm, not as an individual per se, but as part of a system. Mm. So, and being ready to know that you're going to be the villain of somebody else's story. And it's not about jumping to the point of, do I deserve it or not? It is, how am I going to understand this better so that that's not, doesn't become a reality. So we, um, folks who are always are pretty much most of the time in the space of folks who aren't in the power identity, we are usually, we already know what it means to be the villain of other people's story in a way that's totally unearned. Um, so when I go into a room, I'm already entering in a deficit where the stories being told about me could be that, you know, I'm the affirmative action hire or I have, you know, several kids with different fathers and that means that I have been promiscuous or I have a bad credit score or I have, you know, all the stories or I steal or whatever when I go to the go to a store that I'm being followed around, like I'm already the villain of somebody else's story, you know, and if you're gay in society, what does it look like? I mean, we see it the biggest time, you know, really in the 80s of, oh, Everyone who's gay is a person who's caused AIDS. Like we're the villain of other people's story. We're the reason why, you know, culture has gone down. So we're always walking in that identity of being the villain of somebody else's story. Hmm. So for other people who've been in power, the power class, like when you're going into these spaces, you're likely going to be the villain of somebody else's story because you're wearing the marker and getting the privileges, whether you want to or not. Of the, of the very systems that have been causing us harm, right? right? And if your response is gonna be defensive and say, but it wasn't me versus understanding it. And what's the narrative under that? And really what's the reality and truth under that too? Mm-hmm. But you have to have historical context to understand equity and to be able to have that transformational change that requires you to be introspective, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, what that's bringing up for me is, um a decade or more ago, um, the church that I was going to in Vancouver started doing a lot of reconciliation work with First Nations and like all of the the historical hurt that has been caused by churches to the first people of our land. And I remember like at first being like, wow, this isn't for me. I didn't do anything to hurt people. And, And then as I started to listen more and more and I'm just like, whoa, like there's a connection between white people colonizing and wanting to create the railroad to get across the country and putting people into residential schools. And those are my ancestors. And just by virtue of who I am here today, I have benefited from all of that. And like, I have to repent. I have to apologize. I have to do work in reconciliation and yeah, that's a really amazing reframe to, to recognize, like take it out of that individual, you hurt people, but like we have hurt people and just by the skin that I'm in, 
or the, the DNA that I have, being able to learn and apologize and create reconciliation. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it takes a lot to, to go through that. Um, a lot of, I think, emotional work. Um, you think about shame and grief. I always talk about the barriers to transformative change in this work is, you know, they are grief and they are shame. It's shame and grief. So when you think about recognizing the story um, and being the villain in somebody else's story and the history around that, it takes a lot to say, yeah, I mean, it was caused by people who are in the skin like mine and I'm still benefiting from it. And that can be really heavy. Mm -hmm. It has to do with, hey, so what are you going to do about this? And it might be that, you know what? I can never go to have my kids go to that person's house for dinner who was a best friend because they use that word and they refuse to think differently about it. And there's grief for loss of that relationship, right? There's grief for saying, hey, I'm the nice guy in this and recognizing to me, yeah, I guess I'm nice and I haven't done anything. But when people see me, they could be thinking this because of the skin I'm in and because I am benefiting from A, B, or C. And that's hard too, because you're grieving the loss of how you saw yourself. And you're also seeing now, wow, there's a lot of different ways people are seeing me. And there's actually some legitimacy to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This episode was brought to you by Centered Life Coaching. And I've got a special new offering I'm excited to share with you. Does life feel a little bit crazy right now? There's a lot of hustle and bustle. There's a lot of noise. It's hard to hear yourself. I got you. Join me on the front porch, away from the hustle of life. Sit down. Take a breath. Share what's on your mind and heart. This is where you'll discover your true self. Come and hear yourself into being. You'll be astounded at what you notice. There's a link for the front porch sessions in the show notes or you can sign up at centered.ca. I'm waiting on the front porch for you. Are you coming? Yeah. And the antidote for that shame is like, in, in some ways I think like humor and being able to, to take yourself more lightly and recognize like, okay, like, yes, I have been part of this, but also how can I move forward without like making myself so wrong and punishing myself with shame, but like with a lightness in moving forward and in a generosity. Yeah, I think, I'm not sure you'll have to correct me. I think that when you use the word humor and you're saying lightness, I think that is it that, is that your proxy for self-compassion? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that that looks different for everybody, right? It might be if it's humor that gives you the lightness of self-compassion so that you can move forward and still carry this truth then let it be humor. Um, for other people, it might be something else, right? It might be understanding my story 
in learning and unpacking that. It, it is um, shame. We know one antidote to shame is also empathy, right? So being able to unpack it with others and to have others, you know, connecting with you over this and what trying to connect to support you and to listen to you through it versus the you're so terrible, you're so bad, are you holding it and not being able to even speak it, Mm -hmm. process it. So I think that there's this idea of how healing and moving forward happens in connection with other people. I I love what you say about that, that like all of this reconciliation work has to happen within relationship and in, in knowing people. And can you speak more of that? Yeah, I, well, I love the example that you gave just now about the reconciliation work and doing it within the context of community and a church community mm-hmm. and moving through it together and being able to not only see, you know, this community of Indigenous people and understanding that history, but also there's something really powerful about seeing each other, like you seeing your other church members who the ones who might look like you and have the same history and you guys seeing each other and having a nod and agreement of this is right we're not wrong we have each other we're gonna move forward so it's like the seeing each other and carrying each other through it in support but then you're also seeing other people the indigenous folks too like you're seeing each other and you're crossing kind of a bridge together um, to meet on the other side. So I think about that community in that way of who's crossing the bridge with you. Even though you might be meeting somebody on the other side to connect with, whether it's this idea of reconciliation with um, indigenous communities, whether it's about, you know, being white and thinking about, you know, the AAPI community or the black community and reaching them, but doing it you know, in relationship with others. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really the only thing that changes us is getting to know someone's story. Because I know that like, even in, in my context of, you know, working with LGBT folks, like particularly in churches, people have these dogmas and these scriptures that they hold to. But then once they get to know someone and it becomes a real person, it's like, oh, this is different. And I have to look at this differently in relationship. Yeah, I I do agree that knowing people's story creates a stronger um, path towards compassion and empathy. Um, I also think that the work can happen if you don't know their story, but you have a clarity about who you want to be. Hmm. Um, So the idea of who do I want to be or who am I even and how am I going to hold myself accountable to that? So regardless of what the other person's story is, if you know that your goal is that you're going to treat people humanely, you can show up and be accountable for that and hold yourself accountable, even if you don't know that person's story in front of you, right? But I do certainly agree with you that it is a powerful thing to know someone's story and to create a depth of greater connection and that idea of seeing someone else's humanity and being motivated in this other way. But I do believe that even absent that change can happen. Right. Mm -hmm. Hmm. I'm curious what, what's your next coming out story? 
Like I, I believe that everyone that's growing and changing, there's always this like new layer of the onion that we're shedding. And we're saying like, this is more true of who I am. And I see you as someone who is constantly challenging herself and growing. And um, so I'm curious, do you have something that you would share with us as your next coming out chapter? I think the one that I haven't figured out that a lot of people can relate to, it was actually when I said, oh, I think I have two coming out stories. The other one was becoming a parent, Hmm. you know, becoming a mother. Um, And for women, it's really different than men when you're becoming a parent because especially if you're birthing the child, because even before you're ready to come out about it or talk about it, your body is giving you away. Specifically for me, I felt that that was a whole part of your identity changes. You know, now people all of a sudden might feel like they can rub your belly or now you're like this, you know, mother and whatever, all these stories that people have about that. Like, do they need to protect you or whatever? We have so many people act really weird when all of a sudden you've got that baby bump. But that was really difficult for me that my identity externally changed before I fully processed what this meant to be a mother. And I think even now owning the narrative that I make every day when I'm interacting with my kids about like, what kind of parent do I want to be? You know, it can be really heavy and burdensome. And I think that for a lot of parents, we carry that. And the story that comes out on the other side, which is like who your child ends up being there's so much accountability around that that we give ourselves even though now they're like little humans making their own decisions but I think that that's a um, parenting and that narrative around parenting and how we carry that identity is something that is so shame-filled and shame-inducing and (laughs) guilt-filled and I think it is an area that hasn't been um, the layers haven't been pulled out pulled back enough around that, which may even inhibit us from being the best types of parents we could be, right? And I don't fully know, um, I haven't fully examined that, but I know that it's one of the hardest things. Tell me more about this shame field in regards Uh, to parenting. Well, um, you know, parents are great at shaming each other. You know, it's the one up, oh, my kid's doing like 20 sports and fluent in 20 languages and they're like president of that, you know, honors, whatever, all these things are, oh, and we're doing blah, 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 blah. And you're, it can leave you thinking, oh man, am I doing enough? Oh man, I was asleep at the wheel. Oh man, my kid didn't do anything for the summer. Like it's this like weird one up thing instead of just inviting people to figure out what is the kind of parent they want to be and that no one's getting it right. And uh, A for of your ch- or child getting an A is not indicative about the quality of parent you are. And it's also not indicative about your kids' abilities. Mm-hmm. But we have all these trappings that tell us otherwise. Do they make the team? Are they a starter? And then a kid, I think a lot of parents, their value is tied up in that and their self-worth. And so if your kid's not doing blah, 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 there, there's that shame that comes from it, right? And you can only imagine what does that mean for the kid and how they, their self-worth is tied up into that or what, but parents do this to each other. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we have a whole system around this, which is why we get caught up in perfectionism and other things, but yeah. And it reminds me of what you were saying, you know, as a young kid, recognizing like there's all these ways that I try and contort myself to fit in and like finally coming to that place of just like, I'm going to own who I am. And same thing as a mom, like 
I'm going to raise these kids the best that I know how. And they're their own person. I'm not going to be a home. It's not going to be a homeroom every time. And it's not going to be, it's going to be messy. Right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And I don't know the answer to that, but I wonder about my coming out story about the kind of parent, you know, what ended up happening in that and what did I, I learn and who, who am I through that? So I'm curious about that a lot. What would be your guess? Like what, what kind of parent were you? Are you? I don't, you know, I think I would want my kids to know, you know, know that they're loved and for like, for them to be able to see the toxicity in the water, right? Like the water that everybody's drinking, recognizing they don't have to drink it, Mm -hmm. you know, or when it's being shoved at them and they're navigating it, be it like the, if it's the college admissions thing or the trying out for teams or whatever, that it doesn't indicate their own self-worth right Mm -hmm. or their ability is is not the end of the story so I think I would want that to be what they're walking away with yeah yeah same thing I'd want for my clients right yeah and do you see that in your boys man total TBD I don't know what's going on over here (laughs) all kinds (laughs) of hormones I got 11 year old and one about to be 13 so I can a lot. I don't know what's going on half the time. Yeah, you're in the thick of it right now. <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's a wing and a prayer. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do think that one thing I see is they have big hearts, you know, and can be kind. And I'll take that for now. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's huge. Yeah. And yeah. That, like seeing your example, they will take that with them for their whole lives. Okay, Nancy you know, you're seeing one dimension of me. <laughs> I can totally be tiger dragon mom. So <laughs> I'm going to get so much credit because you're seeing a lot of uh, dimensions of their mom. So <laughs> mm-hmm. I hear you. I, I'm the same. <laughs> yeah. so definitely. Own, uh, you know, I'm going to own that part. So yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, we should reconnect in like five years when they've gone through that college admissions part and start to hear where they're at now. Yeah. And then your your identity as a mom will be shifting again. And it's like, I know, oh, right? Yeah. Absolutely. As maybe I just be chef, a chef or something else. Maybe it won't be college. I don't know what it is. I have to like fix my mind to make sure that I'm ready to accept whatever they decide, right? Or what happens. Yeah. Yeah. For yeah, sure. That's, yeah. that's hard to let go of that expectation. And yeah. Do you have kids? I do. Yeah. I have two three year olds and a 18 month old so I'm also in the thick of it in a different way yes yes you're yeah you're in the very also manual labor part where you have all those like car seat and like all the stuff before you can leave the house yeah yeah it's a lot yeah yeah I'm grateful for a good partner she she took the kids to day home today so that I could prep for this and oh um, I'm grateful Yes, the partnership is important for sure. Mm-hmm. Anything else on your mind, Nancy? Are you good or what? Yeah, thank you so much for being here today. It was so awesome to hear your stories. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. And I like sharing. I like hearing other people's stories. So thank you mm-hmm. for that. Yeah, keep sharing your wisdom, your grace with the world. We need it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Coming Out Chronicles. 
If you enjoyed it and you think it would be helpful for someone else, please share it with them. If you'd like to connect with me, reach out on social. I'd love to support you in the next chapter of your coming out story. I can help you know yourself, free yourself, and be yourself. Until next time, this is Nancy Shadlock from Centered Life Coaching.